everyone, and welcome back to Mesoamerican Studies On Air. My name is Katherine Wild, and in today's episode, we're going to be interviewing Morgan Clark, an archaeologist in Brown's PhD program, who's going to talk about the research process, gourds and containers, and having crazy faith in yourself. Morgan Clark is currently a first-year student in Brown University's Anthropology PhD program. She graduated from the University of Texas at Austin with majors in Anthropology, English, and Linguistics. Her research interests include Maya archaeology and epigraphy, and she's particularly interested in animism and animacy in Maya religion and language. She has excavated and processed artifacts at a historical site in Buda, Texas, as well as at several prehistoric Maya sites in Orange Walk, Belize. Her undergraduate honors thesis was titled Mortuary Chocolate Among the Ancient Maya, an iconographic analysis of the exemplar from the spouted vessels of Kolha, which she will be talking about today. So, Morgan, first of all, thank you so much for taking time to sit and talk with me today about your research. Um, I read through it. I absolutely loved it. I told you that before. (laughs) Um, But I am really excited to talk with you more about this research process and what you learned through it. Um, So I guess just kind of to start off, why don't you tell me a little bit about what brought you to this topic and what questions you had as you were beginning it? Sure. So I kind of started doing this because the professor that I wanted to be my undergraduate honors advisor suggested it as a topic. Uh (laughs) Um, And I kind of went to him with these ideas that I had, and he knew that I was more epigraphically inclined than his uh, normal batch of students. Um, So he had this vessel that had been excavated only a few years before, and no one had ever written on it before or published even any images of it. So he thought maybe I could look at whether or not the incising on this spouted vessel was iconographic or if it meant anything or if it was just purely decorative. So at the time it seemed really ambitious to me because I looked at the vessel and had no idea what I was looking <laughs> at. Um, but I had I had some kind of crazy faith in myself that it would make sense to me eventually Mm -hmm. um and I mean that's how that's how it started and eventually after becoming more uh spending more time doing epigraphy um I started to think that the incising on the vessel was a really early sky band because some of the signs looked kind of like uh, eek signs, like wind glyphs, and um, I thought that was a good start. Yeah. <laughs> um, that turned out to be like a red herring, I guess. Mm-hmm. So I had completely different uh, conclusions by the time I finished, but I liked to include it in in my thesis when I was writing it at the, at the time because it's kind of interesting to think about whether or not there is any relationship between uh you get sky bands kind of around the rims of classic vessels pretty frequently and Mm -hmm. you wonder where that really comes from but that's how it started yeah yeah and so I I thought it was really interesting when you talked about you know you had this theory this hypothesis that it was a sky band and then little by little it seemed like the pieces started falling into place that pushed you away from that theory mm-hmm. and I really like the conclusion that you came to I've seen in your paper you did a lot of stuff there were a lot of steps that went into this you know you photographed the vessel from 
about a hundred different angles. I don't even know how, how 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 long did it take you? Like, how many hours do you think you spent with this object, and how did you document it? So it was kind of an interesting thing because I knew the vessel was going to stay in Belize the entire time I was going to be writing about it. So I thought that I would do eventually do photogrammetry of the vessel. So. The, uh, the project photographer at uh, Program for Belize Archaeological Project, Bruce Templeton, um, helped me out with that. He took the photos for me, and I think there were actually only about 25 photos. And the plan was for me to use those photos to generate a model. The learning curve for photogrammetry was much uh, steeper than I expected. Mm-hmm. So now I know how to do it, but it's taken me maybe like six or seven uh, attempts for a single vessel. But anyway, I didn't, I didn't manage to create a successful model of, of that vessel, but I do have these 25 brilliant photos that I was working with. And I did two drawings, a front drawing and a back drawing of, mm-hmm. of the vessel, which I included in my thesis to talk about whichever part of the iconography I was trying to highlight in the sections I was writing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the iconography. What did you find out, and how did that differ from your original hypothesis? So very serendipitously, Dr. Stewart had sent out an email about this recent decipherment of his, that this decipherment of the Tsima logogram that he originally presented on in October of 2018, but I realized that some of the variants for Tsima looked very suspiciously like the punctated band that I was seeing on this spouted vessel. So the Tsima variant I was looking at was basically kind of like a globular shape, and then there was a, an opening kind of at the top, and then these punctated lines beneath that opening, which I had seen... I had seen a lot of that in other spouted vessels and in just on rim sherds of pre-classic ceramics. And I I thought it was really weird. I don't know. Obviously, the, the, it was a great and lucky coincidence for me, but I had I ran it by him because I wanted to know if I, you know, my hunch had any validity. And he thought that it completely made sense because before ceramics gourds were used as containers right so and of course like gourd skeuomorphy is pretty pretty common especially in the classic period when you have bowls that are very explicitly gourd shaped Mm -hmm. so i was thinking it it was more i was thinking of it as a kind of skeuomorph along the lines of the kawak or the Mm tay sign where it's pretty abstract but you know that it's signing this is stone or this is wooden so I was thinking it it was kind of that version of this is gourd Uh (laughs) Um, and then I I had to parse that out or parse parse the iconography into different pieces because that punctated band seemed to be working kind of independently or maybe in in a conflation with the other parts extending from it which were a quatrefoil and then these these wind volutes. So wind volutes, when they're extending from quatrefoils, we think of flowers and caves, mm-hmm. which are both animate things that breathe. But I was kind of conflicted because I felt like the reading that really made sense was an axis mundi, so thinking of it as a king kunks and not a quatrefoil. Mm-hmm. But it's hard to say that those 
ideas are really all that distinct. In one section, I talk about the differences between uh, floral quatrefoil, quatrefoil as a cave or, you know, an earthen maw, and um, a king kunks as an abstraction of the world tree, because definitely they are all doing different things and they can mean different things depending mm-hmm. on their contexts. Wh- who's to really say? I mean, mm-hmm. both make sense. And the thing that I ended up talking about in the end with the, with the wind volutes was that the vessel, the way the vessel is used is by blowing into it and frothing it. Right. So there's a connection between breath and life and animating and mm-hmm. animating the contents of the vessel, which are um, ceremonially offered to the deceased person who, you know, symbolically partakes of the beverage and right. symbolically is reborn. Mm-hmm. Um, or at least that's what I argue. Yeah, so you do get this idea of birth and rebirth through the animating qualities of interacting with this vessel, right? Mm-hmm. You mentioned in your paper that cacao trees were frequently seen in art representing the Axis Mundi, right? Yes. Cacao and maize really are uh, most common instantiations or, um, I guess, literal depictions of the world tree. And uh, the Simon Martin piece on on chocolate that he wrote in 2006 in Cameron McNeil's book on chocolate talks a great deal about this. And I, because of what Martin said, I, I think of maize being the, um, the lifeblood of the living and cacao as being the lifeblood of the dead because oh, it's I like... like that. You know, it's an it's there's like an inversion where cacao is the counterpart, the maize counterpart in the underworld. Mm-hmm. So I actually had originally written that in my thesis and thought it sounded too um, too silly, and I ended up taking it out. But yeah, I think that's a good way to think about it. And you do have a lot of cacao offerings in in burials, and you do see people depicted as as cacao trees ancestors. There's the the sarcophagus lid on uh, Pakal's tomb. Mm-hmm. One of his ancestors is depicted as a cacao tree, although there are other ancestors depicted as other trees also. Mm-hmm. Um, but cacao definitely does seem to have a strong association with the underworld. I think you definitely have a strong argument there. Yeah. Part of that was drawing from this mythology from the Popovu about Hun Hunapu being relinquished to this Pukbalchach tree where mm-hmm. he was dead but he was a tree and his head was hanging from the branches of the tree and you get different interpretations of what fruit he is and some sources say that he's a cacao tree and others say that he's actually a calabash tree and Grof in his PhD dissertation from 2007 says that maybe it's a little bit of both, I which is kind of interesting. You think of, like, a, ca- a calabash tree, but it's full of, like, a chocolate beverage or something. There's this interesting connection between cacao and fertility, but also gourds and fertility, which was sort of this unexpected but lovely turn that I was able to take, and that was also something that I was starting to think about I, I thought about it because of the San Bartolo murals, and you have the scene where uh, there's five newborn babies coming out of the calabash, and um, I've heard different things for what that 
means. Some people say, like, maybe the five original dynasties. I have definitely read maybe that it's the five days of creation or, like, the Wyeb, Mm -hmm. um, which I think is probably the most compelling interpretation because then you can read that scene as being the creation of the world and it makes sense because you have, like, the mountain of sustenance, you know, and you're taking the, the goods from the mountain of sustenance. But anyways, um, I was also thinking, I've read about euphemisms, I think in Nahuatl, for genitals being different words for yes. gourds. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then also when I was reading that Carlson and Practical article, the thing that really struck me was a ceremony that is practiced during a world, re- world renewal ceremony where a beverage is prepared inside a gourd and sim- symbolically represents semen, which is exactly how I was thinking of beverages in gourds because of the popofu. Basically, if you think of Hun Hunapu's head, and it's a calabash, maybe, and it's spitting right. into the hand of a maiden who becomes impregnated, I'm like, this is, this is a gourd full of life juices yes <laughs> so um that was how I was thinking it and then I, I read the article and felt vindicated yeah I think that makes sense yeah definitely <laughs> so so just kind of summing up here what would you say in a nutshell is the main conclusion of your research and what are you excited about moving forward with this conclusion yeah so I think that I mean the iconography on this vessel is very specific to this one vessel um but the shapes of spouted vessels are very, very calabashy in general. Some of them very explicitly uh, with these gadrooned flutes, um, and others with these punctated bands, and others that are just calabash shaped. They're just nice squat spherical type of uh, body shapes. And even without the iconography, I wonder if they were thought of as being gourd-like and whether or not that played a role in their use in mortuary ritual. And not all spouted vessels were used in mortuary ritual. Skolha mm-hmm. is one of these places that they seem to have only been used in those contexts, but there are a lot of other pre-classic sites that I mentioned in my, in my thesis as well. I think it just adds another dimension to how we can understand the way these vessels were used in mortuary ritual. And what the motivation for that was. Before, I just had this idea that, okay, well, cacao is maybe associated with with death, and it's an elite good, so it's, you know, interred with a body, an elite body. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that what I've done in my thesis is offer a, a picture of what, what it actually might have looked like for the object to be used. Right. Um, and giving it some symbolic depth, talking about why it is that the object and what the object is used for is related to rebirth and how that is really not all, su- all that surprising because you have that idea, these like ancestor veneration ceremonies mm-hmm. and other mortuary rituals that are um, associated with bringing new life to the deceased even today in in some Maya communities. Thank you so much, Morgan, for making the time to come in today. 
And thank you everyone else for listening to today's episode. Be sure to tune in next week for the next installment of Mesoamerican Studies on Air. Thank you.